You're listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Well, a happy new year, although it seems a bit late to be saying that. Welcome to the first Pythagorean astronomy of 2018 with me, Chris North. And me, Edward Gomez. Later on, I'll be speaking to a researcher from Oxford who's been working on a study of massive stars in a nearby small galaxy. Uh, But first, let's look at a few other things that have been going on in recent weeks. Um, A couple of rocket launches... Um, Edward, how do you want a space glitter ball? (laughs) Well, I'm a fan of Strictly Come Dancing, as you know, so (laughs) a space glitter ball does sound quite appealing. Although, why you'd put something which causes such obvious light pollution um, up in the sky, um, it it totally baffles me. You know, it doesn't really serve any purpose other than to annoy astronomers um, and maybe to prove a point about, I don't know, um, rocket labs... CEO's ego. Yeah, so this is a launch by Rocket Labs, uh, launching a bunch of satellites and this um, glitter ball, uh, this disco ball or whatever. Uh, so this is a spinning, uh, a spinning object with um, flat reflective sides like a glitter ball um, rotating in space as it orbits the Earth in fairly low Earth orbit. The idea being that it reflects the sunlight into little patches of the Earth as it goes over. So you might see this object sort of flashing as it goes overhead, I think is the idea. Yeah, um, I don't really see the point in it. It's, mm. it. I think the CEO called it a star for humanity, but um, it doesn't serve any scientific purpose. Um, it doesn't really serve any technological purpose. Um, and it seems like the type of idea that came up in... Uh, some sort of management meeting and everybody said yeah that's a really good idea we'll get loads of press headings from that and passed each other on the back and didn't think about the consequences very much i mean there's over a thousand satellites up there uh in orbit so having one more on the face of it isn't going to make a massive difference to satellites streaking across people's images and so on and when you go out on the night sky i'm also not convinced because i I went out the other night with my five-year-old daughter actually because we saw the space station was going to go overhead and we watched the space station go over and my two-year-old was there as well i'm not quite sure she really (laughs) grasped what was happening she mainly pointed at the moon but my uh my five-year-old was you know interested to see the space station uh, flying overhead and that doesn't need an extra launch of an extra object. And you can talk about there being people on board and it does stuff and so Yeah, on. the space station is much, much more interesting than this um, this stupid little glitter ball. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, the only advantage, I suppose, is is that it will disappear in about nine months and it'll burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. Yeah, orbit, that's right. Orbit will decay. I, I have heard people say that the, the problem here is not this individual satellite, but the precedent it sets. Yes, billboards up in space and yes. things like that. So what happens when someone launches a constellation of these satellites, a set of these satellites that spell out a, a word, you know, Facebook or something yeah. in the sky as they go around? Yeah, it's um, like something from uh, Douglas Adams. Yes. Uh, so ho- hopefully it doesn't set a, set too much of a precedent. On the other hand, maybe there'll be a few people who look at it and get inspired, but as we said, there are lots of other things that are maybe better for inspiring them than uh, this glitter ball. It's worth saying, if you want to go and see a satellite uh, going over, all you have to do is go outside and look up. uh, And uh, normally near uh, just after sunset, um, or when the sky's got dark after sunset, you can see uh, objects that are are moving, not flashing, are moving fairly steadily, uh, normally at a very constant rate across the sky, so they're not an aeroplane. Uh, often going through the near the, or towards the pole star because they're normally in polar orbits if you know where that is. But the really bright one to find is the International Space Station. So that goes from west to east. Uh, it's visible uh, at the moment from the UK in the twilight skies in the evening. But uh, I can recommend uh, an app called Heavens Above and a website called Heavens Above for finding 
uh, if there's space stations going over. Do, do you use any apps regularly for finding these kind of things? No, or? I actually use uh, Heavens Above if I need to find it. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's I definitely recommend looking at the space station. Yeah, normally the brightest thing in the sky after the moon, possibly Venus, but certainly very bright, moving from west to east. Go and see if you can find that uh, one day. Uh, other launches that have uh, maybe not gone quite to plan. Um, the now very reliable Ariane 5 rocket, Europe's largest uh, rocket, most dependable rocket, I guess, uh, had a bit of a, a wobble, bit of a launch, not literally a wobble, or maybe it was a wobble, uh, a launch anomaly at least um, earlier on this month. Uh, when it was trying to launch a, a couple of satellites, commercial communication satellites, into orbit, and it went a little bit wrong. Yeah, it's, I was going to say it's not rocket science. Clearly, <laughs> it's rocket science. Um, but uh, it's it's actually very difficult to uh, launch a rocket and to put it to put things in to orbit around the Earth, um, or indeed around the Sun, or um, it. But it's it's there are ways of doing it so that the uh, the the thing that you're trying to launch is in the right part of the sky. And this this uh, seems to now be in totally the wrong part of the sky. And nobody really knows why. I mean, there's the measurements are made of the rocket as it's going up. And um, there are various different, obviously, as it passes over different parts of the Earth, there are different uh, signals that are sent to different stations on the Earth. And, yeah, nobody really knows why. Yeah, I think it looks like what was happening here was that they, they lost contact with the rocket for a little while. Um because it was over the wrong part of the Earth. Uh, we've been going in the wrong direction slightly. Um, <laughs> so as you say, these satellites are in the wrong the wrong orbit. It'll take them another few months to get into their intended orbit, so it's not a complete disaster. But it does pose a worry because while these satellites evidently can still work, if they're in slightly the wrong orbit going over slightly different parts of the Earth than they initially planned, but they'll probably still cover the Earth uh, in the end. Um, for future missions launching on the Ariane 5 rocket, so BepiColombo later this year, a Mercury mission, and of course the James Webb Space Telescope, the uh, successor to Hubble, if you like, um, launching early next year. Um, they really don't want to be on the wrong orbits. No, exactly. These are these are missions that have been in planning for decades, and uh, that would be a disaster. Well, it would be a disaster if, if anything really goes wrong with these two missions. No. Uh, so fingers crossed that that uh, pans out and I'm sure the, the Ariane 5 are planning their next launch uh, Ariane Space so uh, maybe they have a handle on what's uh, going on they just haven't released uh, the results yet we'll find out in due course no doubt other things to look at in the night sky that you can see, um, This, uh, the first broadcast of this will be just after an event that's been tagged as the Super Blue Blood Moon. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the uh, a supermoon is a, a moon that is uh, slightly closer to the Earth, so that uh, its diameter is maybe ten percent larger. I think it's like, yeah, a few percent brighter and about four percent bigger than average or something. It's a very small effect. It's a, yeah, so. it's very small, so it's not exactly super. Um, the blue moon is the the second full moon in a calendar month, and a blood moon is a lunar eclipse where the the moon goes blood red or orange. Uh, so if you live in um, uh, Western Europe, uh, South America or um, uh, Africa, you won't have been able to see it. But hopefully if you live elsewhere, you may have been able to see the super blue blood moon. Uh, and if, if you if you missed it or it was cloudy or it wasn't visible from your part of the world, then um, if you really care about when there's two moons in one calendar month, uh, a blue moon, as it's called, nothing to do with the colour of it. Uh, this happens on average once every two or three years. In fact, there's another one in March this year. 
Um, yes, that's so, right. <laughs> uh, so if you really want to see the second blue moon, the second full moon in a calendar month, that I don't think the moon cares about our own calendar. So yes, uh, uh, then you can go and look at that at the end of March. Uh, if you want to look at a uh, what's called a super moon, this slightly larger moon, I would encourage you to go and look at the moon uh, at any time uh, of the month or year uh, because it's pretty much the same and uh, the super moon doesn't really make much of a difference. Maybe use it as an excuse for going to look at it. Um, it's just the point in the year when it's closest. And if you want to see a, a lunar eclipse, there's another one visible from the UK at the end of July, 27th of July this year, I believe. Um, or a slightly better chance, 21st of January 2019. So in about a year's time, there'll be another one that's worth watching. So those come around a couple of years somewhere in the world. Okay, looking at things that you need a telescope to see, uh, specifically, or in fact not even see, uh, exoplanets, um, planets going around other stars, um, a couple of developments on that. Um, uh, you may remember a few months ago uh, we talked about the discovery of a system called TRAPPIST-1, a star with seven planets going around it, which is a, a fairly good haul uh, for, one, for one star. Obviously our, our solar system's got eight, uh, this one's got seven. Uh, all fairly small, rocky planets. Uh, a, a new analysis uh, or an updated analysis has determined maybe a little bit more about those planets. It's it's very difficult for astronomers to work out whether planets have a uh, what they're made of and whether they have an atmosphere and whether they'll be habitable. This in air quotes habitable, um, which means whether it could sustain life as we know it. Jim, you take the the density of a planet so you uh, you, you need the mass uh, and you need the volume and you get the volume from the radius and those radius uh, so the the, the 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 size of the planet and basically the mass of the planet and those are two things that you can um, fairly accurately measure uh, via two two methods and um, and then you work out what the average density of the planet is now obviously uh, we know what our Earth is like, and we have a fairly good idea what other planets in the solar system are like. And they have a and they have a, a rocky mantle, and they have an iron core. And so you can you can work out what the uh, the average density is. And what they found with these planets on the Trappist system is that they their average density is too high for them to be entirely gaseous, like Saturn and Jupiter. Uh, or and they're also uh, they're too they're not dense enough to have just iron and just rock so there's water on there as well and uh, and then when you think well i sort of know now what the composition is then you measure what how much light they're receiving by how far away they are from their star and you can work out what the surface temperature is and then you can think about uh, maybe if it's like earth then it might be habitable um if if you were to go there Yes, uh, I know the planets closest to the sun. They they looked as well at the what's called the tidal heating. So this is the effect of as they get sl slightly closer and further from the star because they're on slightly elongated, slightly elliptical, oval shaped orbits. They get slightly closer and further from the star. That stretch that causes the the rock of the planet to so the material of the planet to be stretched and squeezed. And so they said there might be uh, some tidal heating that's causing the the, the mantle to be to be molten. Uh, maybe have lots of volcanoes. Maybe more volcanic than on Earth. A little bit of uh, extrapolation, I suspect there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the one slightly further out will also be heated um, and and therefore maybe be uh, not not too. Uh, inhospitable if there's also water there yeah this is the type of thing that also we think that moons of jupiter and particularly saturn have uh tidal heating so that although they're very far away from the sun they're getting uh geothermal type heating or not geothermal whatever 
um, yeah. <laughs> because geom implies that it's the Earth. Um, so, but they're getting heating from their core and from the uh, the interior from this sort of stretching and and squeezing uh, from from the pull of gravity between the sun and the thing that they're closest to. Well, we'll see. I know they they will need some further results. There was one suggestion that there was, these planets may have volcanic eruptions that maybe next generation telescopes will be able to look at these planets and see evidence of these eruptions coming off the surface. Yeah, I mean that would be that would be quite fantastic. Things like the extremely large telescope should be able to see exoplanets mm. instead of just inferring the exoplanets exist. Uh, from uh, these these other methods that, that are used to, to find exoplanets. Uh, they'll actually be able to take a picture of a star with a planet next to it. And so those type of telescopes may indeed be able to, to see these type of eruptions. Uh, there's a new telescope uh, coming online to look at exoplanets as well, something called the Extra Telescope, which is actually not just one, it's three telescopes. Uh, Extra stands for Exoplanets in Transits and Their Atmosphere. Uh, this is using a technique where there are three telescopes that can work together to take pictures of the the star and the little dip of light as the planet goes in front of it and then also uh, feed that light into something called a spectrograph and study the composition of a planet and their atmospheres this is, this is something that you also do in lco that's right yeah we do um uh, particularly so the the reason that you do this is because these things are they're a very faint object next to a very bright object so you want to extract as much information from the light that you've got uh, as possible so if you combine three telescopes you end up with three times as much light uh, from the same target mm. uh, and that's why you want to uh, feed all of that into into one instrument uh, we do this with our one meter telescopes and uh, particularly actually we, we use uh, these these this special instrument the spectrograph for looking at stars wobbling and that infers the detection of uh, a planet going around the star so we'll, we'll have to see what results come out of the, the extra telescope uh, and uh, as it starts operation down in Chile um, to see uh, what it comes out with in the coming years. But it's good to have many more uh, instruments all looking at the sky as well. Uh, slightly further afield, uh, there's a, a study been released of a cluster of stars. Uh, it goes by the name of NGC 3201, uh, if you're really interested, uh, by the very large telescope, uh, the somewhat bizarrely named telescope down in Chile that's eight metres across and a very uh, high precision instrument uh, which can look at the motion of those stars. Uh, and it's discovered, it looked at the motion of those stars, in particular one of them, and found it was whipping around so fast there must be something very intriguing that it was going around. Yeah, and, and it repeated this yeah. uh, it, every half a year or so, every 162 days. And uh, they they can't see anything that it's going around. And they've inferred that it is orbiting around a black hole. And uh, the star is similar in mass to our sun, and the black hole is about four or five times that mass, which is actually pretty small for a black hole. Yes, yeah, so we found lots of uh, black holes that are more massive than that. And in fact, there's thought to be perhaps a, something called a mass gap uh, between uh, objects that are up to maybe two times the mass of our sun, neutron stars, and objects that are five times the mass of our sun and greater, which would be black holes. Um, the gravitational wave observatories, of course, found very, very massive black holes. Yeah. But it's interesting to start to piece together more observations of these objects. And we should say it's, its mass is, is greater than about four and a half times because they don't know its mass exactly. They, they know a range. So it, it might not be in this um, mysterious mass gap. Um, uh, I guess more studies are needed. Uh, yeah. If you can even find that out. Yeah, it's very difficult to do because you've only got one star 
you know, one yeah. star that's doing something strange. Yeah. Another discovery that happened in recent weeks uh, regarded stars in a nearby galaxy, a, a small galaxy, the Large Magellanic Cloud, and in fact one particular region of that uh, that goes by the name of 30 Doradus. Uh, the study was about the masses of the stars in this region and I'm joined now by Dr Fabian Schneider uh, from the University of Oxford uh, who led this uh, research project so uh, welcome to the program Fabian. Hello good to be here. Uh, so first of all tell us um, what you uh, what, what you were doing trying to study this region of, uh, of the large Magellanic cloud. Well that is a long journey that sort of uh, dates back maybe some 10 years now and that started with a huge uh, ESO large program and ESO being the European Southern Observatory. So we've been using the very large telescope there and trying to get spectra, so fingerprints of all massive stars, or not all of them, but a big majority uh, of all the massive stars in 30 Dorados. And we've been actually looking into to see how stars live their lives and in particular then how they might explode in the end. So this was the original aim. And then there have been several PhD students and a huge group of people working on this data now over well, basically the last 10 years and getting to the point where we are now, where we can combine everything together and count stars. And that's what this study was about. What, what, have, you, what have you found from this study? So we've been um, trying to understand initially how stars might have formed in this uh, huge, gigantic stellar nursery. And uh, we've been trying to measure in the first place what, the, uh, what kind of masses the stars have and how old they are. And once we've gathered all this information, we could also reconstruct the formation history of stars and in particular what the birth mass distribution of stars was. And um, this is a really, really interesting and important uh, ingredient, if you like, for many fields in astrophysics. So if you think about how, uh, if you just want to know, for example, how many supernovae go off in the whole universe, how many black holes are being produced, well, what you need to understand then is how many of these massive stars that would explode in a supernova and that could produce a black hole are formed in the first place. And so this uh, function, this birth mass distribution of, of stars, sort of an essential ingredient and we've been trying to to measure it in 30 dorados and that's where the big surprise came into the game because probably since at least 50 years or so people had a um, pretty clear idea maybe of how stars form and this goes under the name of a salpeter initial mass function and initial mass function just being um, exactly this birth mass distribution of stars so this is how many how many low mass stars to high mass stars. So so small ones to big ones, if you like. Uh, exactly. Born. If you exactly. Mm -hmm. So if you want to want to know, for example, how many stars of a given mass have been born in a star cluster or in in, in some star forming field, um, then this function gives you exactly this answer. So you know then, for example, um, that high mass stars, and by high mass stars, I mean now stars maybe eight times or up eight up to ten times the mass of our sun, and how many of those were born. In comparison, for example, to low mass stars like our sun, or lower mass stars like our sun, and then you figure out that these high mass stars are extremely rare. So maybe less than one percent of all mass of all stars born are these high mass stars, and we've been exactly trying to hunt them down and uh, try to see how many of of them we've got. And and your results are somewhat surprising. So you say there's, there's been this. Um, consensus over the last few decades of how many of these high mass stars are that there are relative to, to the lower mass stars and and you found that um, your, your results differ exactly so in, in the past and to be uh, and to be fair to maybe other studies in in the past as well 
it was it, it is really really difficult to measure uh, the masses of these high mass stars and also to, to get a good census of how many of them are, um, are there in the universe and our study really uh, allowed us to probe this question say with a with a lot of um, significance um, and then we basically found that uh, beyond 15 or 30 times the mass of our, our sun we found a surplus and excess of these massive stars by 30% or roughly one third compared to what people were believing and what people have been extrapolating from measurements made in the local universe or in our local um, home yard in, in, in the Milky Way. And this was a big surprise. So there are 30% more of these very massive stars than, than we previously thought uh, were out there. That, that That's quite a significant fraction more, I guess. What, what does that tell us about the... Um, the the impact that's had on uh, the galaxies they're in or the the regions of space that they're in. Exactly. So thirty percent by itself might not sound maybe as uh, as the largest numbers, um, but if you look into the the results or the consequences and the implications of that, that is uh, where the result really um, becomes really really interesting. And for example, you can translate this number into. Uh, how many more supernovae we would expect to see in a star-forming region just like 30 Dorados. And the increase, for example, in the number of supernovae, that, that is already by maybe 70%. Um, and if you then maybe ask uh, how many more massive black holes you might have in, in such a star-forming region like 30 Dorados, um, then this increase is already a factor of three or four compared to what people were assuming beforehand. And that is really where, where things uh, get interesting for example, if you if you look into uh, gravitational waves that are really really interesting nowadays, um, this has certainly some implications for how we have to interpret uh, the rates that we observe. Like you say, this this is hard to measure. But part of the reason is that these very massive stars don't live for very long. Um, so, th- how how do you cope with the fact that they're, they're gone in the blink of an eye? Yeah, well, that's where Three Dorados comes into the game, and this is a really young uh, nursery. And uh, many stars that have been formed are still alive today, but that it's not doesn't hold for for all of the objects. For example, uh, to give numbers, we had a sample in the end with which we could work of 250 objects. Well, not exactly 250, but say 250 uh, for this purpose. Um, and these were all stars more massive than 15 solar masses initially, and we could convert that into a number um, that. Uh, would correspond to 140 objects in this region that have formed already in the last 10 million years or so, but that, that already finished their lives. So we, will, we would have at least 140 corpses of massive stars uh, living in this area just from the last 10 million years. So that's how short-lived these objects are. And then, well, these 140 stars have probably produced black holes, neutron stars, and, and all these crazy things. And 10 million years sounds like a long time. Okay. Of course, astronomically speaking, it's it's a really it really is a the, the blink of an eye. It's not very long at all compared to the the expected lives of our sun. Uh, and exactly, so yeah. So yeah, our, our sun, for example, has a, a lifetime of maybe ten billion years. So that's what you may want to compare it to. Exactly. So one million year or a few million years for for the universe is, is literally nothing. This is just a blink, a blink of an eye. Mm. And so what are the next steps? Are there, you must have made uh, some assumptions in your calculations and, and your, your analysis of the data. Are there, are there other things you, you want to you want to check to confirm this or make other observations? Absolutely. We would love to do a similar analysis, maybe not in 30 Dorados itself, but maybe in similar star-forming regions or maybe uh, 
not in the large Magellanic Cloud, but maybe in the small Magellanic Cloud, maybe also in some star-forming regions in our own Milky Way. And that would be fantastic because we have developed now um, a, a great toolkit, if you like, uh, from analyzing spectra of stars, getting the fingerprints of them and getting to know what the surface uh, physical properties are and then also converting that into, into masses and ages. So we have a whole machinery uh, at our disposal now that we can use and, and look in yeah into into other star forming regions and to understand maybe uh, whether there are any systematics in the high mass end of this uh, birth mass distribution of stars for example whether that uh, correlates with the metallicity of uh, star forming regions so how many oh, and by metals I should say that astronomers usually call anything a metal um, that is heavier than helium so it's not really a metal for our purposes but or for any day-to-day -day purpose, but for astronomers, this is metals. Um, and there are ideas that maybe star formation differs. Uh, if you go into a low metallicity re uh, region and low metallicity, that is when the universe was young. So if you want to bridge this gap up to the early universe or to high redshifts, as, as cosmologists would say, um, then we have to look into lower metallicity star forming regions. And the large Magellanic cloud is already a step toward in, in this direction. And we hope you can do this maybe in the future with a couple of more regions. So the large Magellanic cloud is more pristine, if you like, compared to the composition of the, the universe today. It's got not, not got so much contamination by those pesky hev heavy elements of carbon and oxygen and so on. So you're saying that that's a, a nice analogy for or perhaps for the early universe. Exactly. So the universe, when it started out, it literally consisted maybe of hydrogen and helium, plus there were some traces of lithium, beryllium, and, and some of these trace elements, but that's it. And everything else then was um, cooked in stars and uh, formed in stars and then expelled into the, uh, into the surrounding medium. And depending on how much these massive stars and other stars in general have produced in terms of chemical elements, um, that could have maybe then an impact on what the ma birth mass distribution of the next generation of stars is. Uh, so this would be one idea that one can try maybe to uh, to understand in the future. Um, but this might not be the only idea. Uh, there are also um, lines of research in the literature already now um, that are looking into correlations or maybe causal connections to how bursty star formation is. And by that I mean by how many stars are, f uh, are being formed in a small region in space. And that could also make an impact on, uh, on this birth mass distribution. And we simply don't know exactly whether we should expect such an environmental dependence or not. And this would be something that, I guess, observations and our analysis uh, could reveal in the, in the future. I guess it's, it's a bit like uh, stellar archaeology, trying to dig through the what you can see to establish what went on before and trying to infer the conditions billions, millions or billions of years ago. Absolutely, absolutely. And already in our, in, in, in our local universe, there are a few dwarf galaxies, for example, that have an extremely low metal content. And uh, maybe uh, with the next generation of big telescopes, for example, just 30 meter class telescopes, the extremely large, teles uh, large telescope that is now being built in Chile. With, its, with um, such instruments, we could maybe even do a similar analysis as in 30 Dorados than in, in really low metallicity environments. And these environments are characteristic, for example, of star formation or the very first star formation in the whole universe. So we could look back if you like, in our home, local home yard, into how stars have formed, uh, for example, at the end of the dark ages of our universe. So this would be something really cool and uh, this would, be, would give us a lot of insights into how stars then transformed the uh, pristine universe, if you like, into the one we live in today.
Now, of course, if we look at how many high-mass stars there are, so stars much larger than our sun, um, the question becomes, uh, how massive can stars get? So does this study tell you anything about uh, the most massive stars that can be formed? Well, that's a good question. Um, so it certainly can help us to put uh, a few constraints on, on this limit. And well, the, big, the, the big first question one should ask is, is there such a limit? And we still do not have a real good answer to, to this question. And what we could do with our data is um, we were able to make some assumptions about how stars formed. And within these assumptions, we could exclude, for example, that um, this maximum birth mass of stars should maybe not be larger than 500 times the mass of our sun. Um, but this is, an, if you like, a upper limit on this maximum mass limit. So it's a complicated sentence now. Uh, but what we could not yet do, for example, is to put a lower limit on this, saying how low could this limit be in order to produce the same observations that we have seen in 30 Dorados. And this is a much tougher or much harder question to answer. Um, but if I were to maybe collect also uh, information from, from other star-forming regions, maybe also in, in 30 Dorados itself, um, and grab sort of all these data that we have together, then maybe it is conceivable and maybe it sounds likely that if such a limit exists, it could be in the range of maybe 200 to 300 times the mass of our sun. And I guess with uh, such a limit, we could um, reproduce or explain most of the observations that we have today. If you go a bit below this 200 solar masses, this might be getting difficult to explain some of the observations. And as I said, earlier, if we go to two large values, and then we also run into some problems. So this seems to be a range maybe uh, that is a bit constrained now by our observations, but certainly the understanding of such a limit is, is really lacking, and this is something that we need to figure out. Well, we're used to talking in astronomy about stars that are uh, the mass of our sun, a few times the mass of our sun, maybe a few tens of times the mass of our sun. What would a star 200 times the mass of our sun even be like? Well, um, we, we do have a few of these uh, examples in 30 Dorados. Um, they would be extremely bright in the first place. So we can expect maybe these stars to be a million, million times as luminous and maybe 10 million times as luminous as our own sun. And they will have enormous winds. And then there's a big question of how they might end their lives. So there's a really interesting possibility that some of these stars explode also in a, in a supernova, but in a very special supernova, in a so-called pair instability supernova. And this would be a, or this could be a really, 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 really big bang. Um, in principle, at least theoretically, these supernovae could produce an extremely luminous supernovae, and they are discussed also as uh, as a as a possibility for some of these super luminous supernovae that recent surveys have figured out and found. And the interesting bit of such pansibility supernovae could be um, that they can produce an enormous amount of metals. And by metals, I now mean maybe iron group elements and, and, and these kind of things. And they can produce ma many more of these metals than other sources could. So this would be or could be a really interesting way to enrich the early universe. Um, yeah, I guess that is sort of the, the difference that these objects make. And that's why these very massive stars, although there are so few of them compared to stars roughly the mass of our own sun they're so important for how these regions evolve because of the the extra elements they create and the the big shock waves and so on that they produce when they when they die 
Absolutely correct. Exactly. So we usually regard to these massive stars maybe as cosmic engines. They literally are the, these engines that, that, that run the cosmos in terms of providing uh, ionizing radiation, radiation in general, uh, to, end, to sort of rebrighten the universe after these dark ages, to form many of the chemical elements, um, also to inject kinetic energy into galaxies. So if you imagine that these stars have extremely strong winds, and this, these winds inject a lot of kinetic energy into the medium surrounding them. The supernovae are driving huge explosions. And this sort of keeps the life cycle of galaxies up. And this is a very, very important, or massive stars produce a very, very important feedback uh, for this evolution. Well, it's uh, fascinating to hear about what we're learning about these most massive, these behemoths of the stellar world. Uh, Dr. Fabian Schneider uh, from the University of Oxford, thanks very much. You're very welcome. So, Edward, um, more massive stars than uh, we should find in this kind of object. That's a, a kind of discovery that gets people quite interested in the results, I suppose. Yeah, it's uh, it might not be quite so obvious why it's interesting as well. Uh, so astronomers, um, when you're studying uh, galaxies and, and uh, the universe at large, you want to have statistics on uh, if I'm looking at a, a patch of sky... Is that the same as a different patch of sky? And uh, you do that by counting the number of stars in uh, different sizes and different masses. And uh, when you find that there's a, a high, a large amount of very massive stars, and more than you're expecting, because you've done this survey in lots of different places, then it has big implications because you've based... Uh, your knowledge previously on um, things that other people have seen and then you've based other theories on those so so if you've this uh, we call that the initial mass function so how much uh, how many stars of all these different masses you'd expect to see in our galaxy or and can you apply that to other galaxies and if it's different for some reason then that's actually quite weird well that's it uh, for this month uh, until next month goodbye goodbye don't forget, you can go to pythagastro.uk to find past episodes and subscribe to the podcast using iTunes or your favourite podcast player. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm. <laughs>